You may remember, well, you do remember, a couple of weeks ago, and perhaps even I referenced last week, I mentioned the name Lloyd Lummis to you. You know, life is a sequence of events. One thing always leads to another and so on. And So Pat was looking through old photographs, sorting through old photo albums. We have a stack of photo albums, you do too, so high. She was going through them. She went through some and she said, now I'm going to just throw these out because we'll never use these again. Well, I know that's not a good idea. You never... So she said, you take these over to Beulah and just get rid of these because... So, yeah. So I brought them over. I said, hi, Beulah, and I put them up there in that room. <laughs> in any event, she came across a picture of Lloyd Lummis. This was a photograph that we had taken while he was leaving here. You remember Lloyd Lummis uh, left uh, Burnaby, B.C. in 1980, and he picked up a cross, a literal cross, and carried it on his shoulder. It was 14 feet long. The beam, the cross member, was 8 feet long. It weighed more than 100 pounds. It had a little wheel on the back, and that permitted it to kind of move along the, the roadway behind him. When he left us, he spent a couple of nights here with his wife, and he left us, and we met him on the highway to say goodbye, and Pat took the picture, and Sherry will probably put the picture up for you this morning, just a little picture of, of Lloyd Lummis. Not as clear as the pictures you would take today, of course, but there you have a, a young man well over six feet tall. That is, a, that is a quite a significant-sized cross. While he was passing through this area, he passed through here in 1982. He left, started his journey in 1980. My brother was working in the radio station in Sault Ste. Marie at the time in the news department. Heard about this man carrying a cross. And he decided he'd go to North Highway and visit and see what this guy was all about. So he did that. He was impressed by him. Called me and we ended up that he came here and gave a little testimony one night. And I was able, thank you, Sherry, I was able to recover that from the old cassette tape. And so I do have that uh, now uh, in digital format, which is great. I wanted to mention a little bit about Lloyd this morning just as I begin. This is not about Lloyd, but just in reference. I'd like to share with you a little bit this morning on living by faith, uh, which is a very basic and familiar subject essential to the Christian life, living by faith. And I want to emphasize the idea of living, which is a continuum, by faith. One of the things that Lloyd talked about when he gave his testimony is he talked about having left Vancouver on the 7th of April, 1980, and journeying through the Rocky Mountains, making about 25 miles a day without any preparation or training for the journey. He said he met a group of young people along the way, and the group said, would you come and stay with us? You come and stay with us. He didn't know where they were. He went, he said, sure. So he went there, and it was, uh, today you would call it a crack house, but then it was like a marijuana den. And all these young people gathered from different parts of the province and different parts of Canada. And he said he came into this house and was filled with all kinds of things, marijuana and uh, books on the occult. And so he said he knew he was in the right place. And so he began to talk about Jesus to the young people. He was very good at just going right to the cross. 
and the work of Christ. He talked about a young lady he met along the road. Several of this, this happened in several occasions. That was contemplating suicide and how, as he talked to her and presented the truth of the cross of Christ to her, and what he was carrying was not the actual cross of Christ, of course. What he was carrying would direct the focus of people to the cross of Christ, to the work of Christ. So uh, he, he talked about how her life was turned around. He talked about a police officer who was standing very skeptical and watching from a distance and became very intrigued by what he was seeing. And later on, that police officer would go and talk to a Christian minister and commit his life to Christ. He said as he moved through the western provinces and came into the prairies, he noticed the Lord was doing something very different in, through, his, through his ministry. And he said, for example, one occasion he uh, it was a young man, young teenage man, came up and Lloyd said, uh, talked to him, and Lloyd put his hand on his shoulder. He just, for whatever reason, he just felt he put his hand on his shoulder. And he said, uh, later on in the week, they went uh, on the Sunday following, they went to a church nearby, and for Sunday morning, a lady came up to him very excited and said, I've been looking for you. I wanted very much to talk to you. This young man, you put his, your hand upon his on his shoulder last week out on the highway. And we've had a problem with this boy since he was born. He was When he was born, the doctor had to dislocate his shoulder during birth. And he hadn't been able to lift his shoulder, or lift his arm above his shoulder his entire life. And after you touched his shoulder, immediately he was able to raise. She said, Are you, can you raise your hand? She said, oh yes, he said. Does it hurt? She said, no, no. But what he was saying is that without anything on his part, without any labor, any work, any knowledge on his part, he noticed the ministry begin to change in the way of manifestation. And as he moved into the western provinces, especially the prairies, the Lord began to minister in ways of bodily and physical healing to people. And he was as amazed by what he saw as were others. One of the things he stressed to us as he stood here that night was that uh, he felt there were two keys. One was to, in other words, to be used of the Lord. One was to be very humble before the Lord, not permit any iniquity in our heart. And the scripture says, if, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So he emphasized that. The other thing he emphasized was the importance of being thankful in all things, no matter what the circumstances would be, but to be thankful to the Lord in all things. Now, personally, I can tell you from my own experience that I had often struggled with that whole concept. Some of it I thought was, was irrational. And the only way I was able to come to peace with that concept was to understand the difference of in and for not to necessarily to be thankful for every calamity that visited, but to offer thanks to God in the midst of all things, no matter what they were. That resonated deep within me, and I was able to accept that. But those were the two things that he emphasized. And so this morning, what I want to say by mentioning Lloyd is that as he traveled across 
Canada that way. He finished his journey in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland in the 5th of October, 1982. He met all kinds of people along the highway and byway, and he saw all these needs, all these needs. And the world is filled with people who have needs of all kinds. And there's a need for salvation. And the word salvation means deliverance and preservation and safety. And so individuals need to be delivered from certain circumstances and conditions. And he saw all kinds of examples of this. And I want to revisit with you this morning Romans chapter 1. And I'll begin to read at verse 16. The apostle is writing and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I'll continue on in a few moments. But I'd like to kind of visit the, these verses and maybe burrow down more deeply into the meaning of these verses and how they are applied. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There are various words here that kind of come out to me and beg for interpretation. I'm not ashamed. One of the ways I found, the best way I found to understand what a word means is to search through your Bible and find the original Greek word, for example, and where that word is used in other places. And then read those other places where that same word is used and you'll come to a better understanding of the meaning of the word just that way because you can see the various contexts in which it is used. For example, when he says, I am not ashamed. Of course, there is a Greek word that the English word is ashamed. There is a Greek word for this. Now, that Greek word is used in another place. For example, in Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16. Let me read this. The apostle is writing and says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. Well, see, now in reading that, we can easily see what the word means. We think we know what it means, but we can see the context. Paul first met a young man named Onesiphorus in Ephesus when Paul ministered the gospel in Ephesus many years before. And Paul started a church there in Ephesus. Onesiphorus and his entire household were saved and came to believe the gospel. And many years later, when Paul was prisoner in Rome, and while he was a prisoner in Rome, he was in prison there, of course, and, and, and many of the believers and even fairly close associates began to distance themselves from him and desert him. He names a few. And in this letter now, which is Second Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, which is among the very last writings of the apostle, soon after this writing, he would be executed. And he writes again, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my change. In other words, he wasn't ashamed of the fact that I'm in prison. Others were. He was not. He traveled all the way from Ephesus 
Onesiphorus traveled all the way from Ephesus. He searched out through the city of Rome until he found the Apostle Paul. And when he found him, he found him in prison. And he came to him in the prison in chains. And he ministered to him and he encouraged him. And he told him about the work of the Lord in Ephesus. And he thanked him for his ministry. And he did all these things to refresh his spirit. And the apostle was so encouraged by all of this. And he asked the Lord to grant special mercy to the entire household of Onesiphorus. You know, it's possible to be ashamed of the gospel. Have you ever have you ever felt a tinge of embarrassment sometimes to carry your Bible in public? Please don't answer out loud. I know you won't. Has there ever has it ever crossed your mind? Um, have you ever hesitated in some way of of quickly responding to a need with the claims of Christ? Have we ever hesitated to say to people who are in need that The answer to your dilemma is found in the gospel of Christ. Have we ever had any hesitation in saying that and in approaching people that way? You know, in a very wonderful way, in a nice way, in a respectful way with people. We have to be very respectful in the way we approach people. But to say to people, you know, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is able to minister to you in the circumstance that you're in. You're crying out for help and you're reaching out for help in all different directions. The writings of Scripture say that in the presentation of the gospel of Christ to you, that God's power is manifested. And God's power is manifested to you as you believe it, as you believe. So sometimes we, even as believers, are hesitant sometimes to approach people in that way, and we ought not to be. And the Apostle is saying, for his part, he was not ashamed to do that. Not one bit. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on and he says, For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Now, when we come to this word now again, I'll go to another word and focus on another word. And the word is power. And the Greek word, as you know, is dunamis. Dunamis. And if you were to say, well, I wonder if uh, our English word dynamite is rooted back to that Greek word dunamis, and the answer would be yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, dynamite, have you ever used dynamite? Don, have you ever used dynamite? (laughs) Calvin, have you ever used dynamite? I would suggest a little bit of caution. Caution would be in order. We often think of George Tanner with his experimentations with dynamite in the olden days. The word power means basically the ability to accomplish something. Dynamite properly used has the ability to accomplish that which may not be accomplished by many other things. And the apostle is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For in the presentation of the gospel of Christ is the power of God, the ability of God. So the word dunamis means it is capable of, it it is capable. It means um, it's able to accomplish that, which is it it is designed and intended to accomplish. The idea of dunamis is that when something needs to be done, that dunamis is able to do it. 
dunamis expresses the idea we have the ability, we have the efficiency, we have the might, we have the capacity to do the thing that needs to be done. And the apostle is writing that I'm not ashamed of the good news of Christ Jesus because in the presentation of this good news of Christ Jesus, the power, the dunamis, the power, the capability of God is manifested but unto salvation. So the word salvation, of course, we, it means to save, it means to deliver, it means to preserve, it means to bring to a place of wholeness, it means rescue. It has, it has a manifold or multiplied meanings. The gospel is the power of God. In the presentation of the gospel, the power of God is manifested unto salvation. Now then he says that this happens... There's one more qualifier here. To everyone that believes. Now before I, I come to this uh, enlargement on what this means to believe, let me return back a little bit to the example of Lloyd Lamas when he was here so many years ago. I suppose one of the reasons, one of the reasons that his ministry appealed to me and affected me so significantly was in during the 1970s. Remember he came he started in 1980 from the West Coast, and he worked his way east. And he talks in his testimony about how this call came to him in the very beginning. And it was amazing that I would say to you that 90, at least 90 or 90 plus percent of people, when they first heard, it was a guy on the highway, big tall guy with long beard, and he's carrying a cross. He's walking along the highway. More than 90 percent of people initially approached that with skepticism, including my brother, including every other news person throughout the West and all across the country. Everybody approached it with skepticism, and then they went out to see him. And they went out to meet him, and they began to talk to him a little bit. And as they talked to him, little by little by little, their skepticism began to fade away and be replaced by, you know, this guy's not crazy at all. This guy's a this guy's very measured. See, we didn't know about Lloyd Lummis. Lloyd Lummis, he spent four years studying theology. He studied at McGill University. He also studied in the United States at one of the universities. It just slips my mind right now. But he spent four years in total. He never said a word about any of that. You say, well, how do you know that? I only know that because I have researched some of the writings and interviews that he had given along the highway, and in one of the interviews, which was rather in-depth, this information emerged. But he never said a word about any of this. Well, one of the reasons that that affected me was because during the 1970s, all through the 1970s, I witnessed up close and personal a migration of young people to the West during the 1970s, starting in the 60s, 1970s. There was a migration of young people traveling west. They were all going west. In the United States of America, this was happening. Remember Haight-Ashbury? In Canada, they were all going to Vancouver. Some of them would go down the west coast of the United States. And when we would see them, for example, I can remember very clearly that along the bypass of Sault Ste. Marie, you would find here's a group, one or two. Down the highway, a half a mile, there's another group of one, two, or three. And you could have four or five of those groups like that in uh, 
a couple of miles. It was extraordinary. There were hundreds and thousands of young people who were migrating like that, going west. And I recall stopping and having a conversation with some of them, and I would ask, you know, where are you from, and where are you going, and why are you going? And, and there was a common theme. And the common theme was, I'm so-and-so, and I'm from southern Ontario, or I'm from the East Coast, and I'm going to the West Coast. And why are you going? I'm going to, and they would say this, I'm, I'm on a discovery. I'm on a discovery. I want to find out who I am. I want to find out who I am. So they were on a discovery to the West Coast, and this was very fashionable back then, this idea of personal discovery. And out of all that tremendous emphasis on personal discovery came a kind of a philosophical movement that was could be summed up with this phrase, you're okay and I'm okay. You're okay and I'm okay. And this was to reassure people that they need not be haunted by any sense of inadequacy or judgment about self-judgment, incrimination toward themselves, that they were fine, they were okay. Don't let anybody tell you you're not okay. Don't let any preacher of the gospel, for example, lay conviction upon you because you're okay, you're all right, you've got to be who you are. How can I be who I am? I have to find out who I am. You see, this was the emphasis back then, discovering who I am. But they used this phrase in there, trying to discover who I am. I am, all small letters, all lowercase, I am. But there is another who is the one who is presented through the gospel who also refers to himself in those same words, but they're all capitalized. It is the great I am. And the great I am has said something about who I am. And the great I am has said, you're not okay. He said, you're in great danger. You are in danger of being lost. You're in such great danger of being lost that you are certain to be lost, and therefore I have sent my son to be the one through whom you can be and might be saved. And it is through the presentation of the good news about who he is and what he has done for you that I minister my power to, to save you and to rescue you as you believe it. And then I saw this young man coming from the West. I saw hundreds and thousands moving to the West. Now I see a young man coming from the West. And you saw a picture of him. And he was a magnificent young man. Absolutely magnificent. If anyone made a movie and wanted to have someone play the part of Christ, I don't believe that Jesus looked like Lloyd Loveless, but I'm saying in the way we Westerners think of someone who could play the part of Jesus in some kind of portrayal, he's about as close to it as you could find in his persona. But there was a wonderful grace that the Lord visited upon him to be able to minister Jesus to the people very simply and powerfully as he walked along the highway. Now let me come and I'll perhaps come to a conclusion on, in terms of to everyone that believes. 
He said to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. To the Jew first simply means beginning with the Jewish people, but also being ministered and made available to the Gentiles, to everyone that believes. What does it mean to believe? You know, I love to come to this word because this word has been, you know, I want to know what the word means. How can my mind be directed properly when I do not understand what a word means? Ask yourself. How can you understand what something is saying unless you can break down the words and understand exactly what the words mean? Because it is the meaning of the words that is intended to illuminate our our understanding. So here's the word mean, the word believe, and the word faith. I could read you the Greek, but I'm not going to bother because it's just a Greek-sounding word. But the Greek word from which we get to believe the word faith means to be firmly persuaded as to something. That's what it means. Isn't that simple? Firmly persuaded. Let me ask you something. So let's suppose you want to buy a new car. Want to buy a new car. And now some of you may not have any, you just may buy the same vehicle all the time, so It's not a big issue for you. Others may like to shop around a little bit. Buying a new car, buying a new home. So you buy a new car, you buy a new home, and you go and you look around a little bit and you find out what's available in the price range and whether or not you like the features of the vehicle or the, if in the cases of a new home, if you like the location, and if that home is the kind of home you have in mind. And you go through a process of determining if this is the right for you or not. Then at some point, before you ever act, before you ever act, before you ever sign any documents or offer any payments, you come to a place that we call being fully persuaded that this is the right one for me. You can think of all kinds of other examples. You may be a young person who's in, who's, um, contemplating marriage not I don't see too many right here that are contemplating it but there may be someone who's contemplating marriage and maybe is you know praying asking the Lord for the right person I hope there's many and they go through a process and sometimes they'll come to a place a person comes to a place where they say I know that he she is the right one for me that God is pleased I know This is the right one. See, and we use this little phrase called fully persuaded. Now, when we come in response to the good news of Christ Jesus, when we come to the place where we are fully persuaded of the truth and veracity of this message, fully persuaded, which is to believe, not partially persuaded, fully persuaded. God's power is manifested in us to save us, to act upon us, to deliver us, to rescue us, to place us into his own kingdom. He does that. We do not do that. We come to a place where we are fully persuaded to believe. His power does the work. This is the gospel. His power does the work. But I have to come to a place where I'm fully persuaded. Somebody said, well, I was fully persuaded at one time in my life. 
and I sensed the power of God in my life. But I've had a lot of doubts that have risen. I've heard a lot of things since then that have caused me to doubt. I've attended university courses and, you know, they, they presented questions that I couldn't answer. And some of the questions that they asked, it began to dig away at my faith and confidence. And I went from a place of being fully persuaded to a place where I wasn't fully persuaded anymore. And in direct proportion to my lack of persuasion, I began to ebb and decline in my spiritual life. The power of God began to be less and less manifested in me and through me. See, this is a life it's a continuum. It's, contended, it's intended to continue. I'm reminded, uh, just as I come to a close, I'm reminded of how this word is used in Acts chapter 26 where Paul was giving a testimony before King Agrippa II and his sister Bernice was sitting beside him. And as Paul gave his testimony about how he came to receive Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, became a believer became fully persuaded. Agrippa said, and it's translated in the King James Bible as, almost, you have persuaded me to be a Christian. Almost is not enough. Almost is not enough. It came to my attention that George Beverly Shea wrote a little book about his reminiscences and so on about the Billy Graham Crusades. And it's called, How Sweet the Sound. And let me read a portion from this. It says, when Billy Graham came to faith in Christ in 1937, he didn't go forward until two songs had been sung. Think of it, Billy Graham, 1937. He's in a gospel meeting. I think the evangelist's name was Ham. He said two songs were sung, and the one was Just As I Am. You knew that one was going to be sung. Just As I Am. You know what the second one was? Almost Persuaded. Almost Persuaded. Oh, I can remember as a young man trying to resist the invitation at the end of, a, you know, of an evangelist presentation. I can remember as a young person trying to resist that. And they'd sing that song, Almost Persuaded. Oh, my it was so they sang just as I am and almost persuaded. It says when the final verse of the second song had been sung twice, Billy Graham rose and went forward. And he was grateful that the man of God in the pulpit patiently waited for more responses to the invitation. Almost persuaded. But it was during the singing of that song that he arose and went forward himself in 1937. And so in Romans again, I go back to Romans, the first chapter in verse 17, and the apostle continuing writes these words, for therein, that is therein. So in the presentation of the gospel of Christ Jesus is the righteousness of God revealed or manifested. And righteousness means this. So I go to this word righteousness. What does it mean, righteousness? And I try to come down to the simplest presentation of the meaning without injuring the meaning. And this is what it means in a broad sense. Righteousness. It means the state of him who is as he ought to be. (laughs) The state of him or her who is as they ought to be. 
In other words, there is a state that God approves of, and God says you're unrighteous if you're not in this state. And when you come into this state before God, He considers you to be righteous. Simply means the condition where a person is as they ought to be, or the condition that is acceptable to God. And so the Apostle is saying, for in the presentation of the gospel, where the power of God is manifested, to bring to salvation everyone who believes that in this dynamic the righteousness of God is manifested or the ability of God to bring a person and place a person in a place that is in right standing in God's own eyes. This is made apparent. And then the apostle continues and says, from faith to faith. And what does that mean? He's talking about a life. He's talking about a continuous approach where this principle is repeated daily as we proceed from faith to faith, or let me put it this way, from being absolutely and entirely persuaded to being absolutely and entirely persuaded. Continuing through, through life, continuing to be persuaded completely and fully of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Continuing. Not just being that way at one time, but continuing in that. So he says, from faith to faith, as it is written, and he refers back to Habakkuk, the second chapter. And in the second chapter of the book of Habakkuk, in the Old Testament, you'll find where it says, the just shall live. And what does it mean to live? (laughs) What does it mean to live? It's very simple. It's so simple. To live is to Continue in life. <laughs> That's all it is. I mean, it's, it's to continue in life. Say, where do you live? Where do I live? Means where do I reside? Where do you reside? Where do you continue to live? You continue to reside. So he says, the just shall live. It means to continue in life. And this is the life that comes from God continuance of it not just to experience it but it says in the book of Habakkuk that the just shall live continue in life by means of faith or by means of this being entirely persuaded entirely persuaded and so I have a little note at the end that says the journey continues your journey continues to receive God's power manifested in your circumstances, my circumstances, I must be fully persuaded in the veracity and the truthfulness of the gospel. Fully persuaded. Am I fully persuaded? If not, what hinders me? What stands in my, in my way? What is the impediment? And if there is an impediment, I must know what it is. And it must be addressed because I do not receive the righteousness that God prescribes or ascribes without being fully persuaded in the truthfulness of the gospel. And so the journey continues. It continues right to the very end. It's the power of God to save, to deliver, and to rescue. And this power of God is manifested in the believer as the gospel is presented.
May the Lord bless and guide and prosper you in your journey that you might maintain this place of being fully persuaded. Let me close with this. Back in the 1940s, Billy Graham in 1937 walked forward and gave his life to Christ. You know the rest of the story with reference to Billy Graham. There was another evangelist at the same time in the early 1940s ministering through and evangelizing through an organization called Youth for Christ. He actually, during the 1940s, in the early part especially, he was better known globally than was Billy Graham. Can you imagine? Who was this man? His name was Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton started a church on Avenue Road in Toronto. Church of the Nazarene, I believe, his mother began to attend. He had an experience that he believed was a salvation experience, Charles Templeton. He was a very gifted individual, intelligent, very gifted person, and good on a platform. And so he became a minister, and he started the church. He and Billy Graham actually traveled throughout much of the world as evangelists, with Billy Graham preaching one message, Charles Templeton preaching the next. Did you know that? Charles Templeton never had any formal theological training. He began to be intimidated somewhat within himself that he did not have that. He decided to go to Princeton Seminary. And he, of course, was exposed to what we would refer to as higher criticism. The higher criticism which actually began in Germany. Mike, many, many, a few centuries ago. And it was a way of skeptically or critically looking at the scriptures and the basis upon which one would uh, conclude that the Bible is the, is the inspired word of God or the authority of scriptures. And they began to doubt the authority of scripture. And Charles Templeton, and he began to fall into this. So you see what's happening now is that he goes from a place of being fully persuaded and he begins to... Re- go backward and he comes to a place where he's not fully persuaded and then he gradually goes further backwards and comes to a place where he has great doubts great doubts I've read some of his writings Charles Templeton he wrote many books Charles Templeton I I just have to be honest with you I consider some of his objections I consider some of his objections to the authenticity of Scripture and some of the things that gave him great doubt, I consider them as being rather easily overcome. And that seems, I I don't want to sound pompous in saying that. It's just that I know that hundreds of thousands of others have came through the very same places. And men superior to Charles Templeton in intellect by a significant amount had no difficulty with the things that became a great um, barrier to him. The point that I make this morning is that he lost his faith. He lost his confidence. He lost his faith. He went from a man who was one of the best, perhaps the best friend Billy Graham had. Billy Graham called him Chuck and said, Chuck and I are as close as two men could ever be. And using this term in the right sense of the word, Billy Graham said he was one of the only men that I really loved 
and then have a close relationship like David and Jonathan. Love, a closeness. That was how close they were. He actually tried, Charles Templeton actually tried to convince Billy Graham to go to Princeton with him. But Billy Graham had his own journey and he had his own time alone before God in the night where he laid his Bible out on the stump and came to the place where he was fully persuaded in the authority of Scripture. See, I want to say to you that the evidence for the authority of Scripture is overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming. But Charles Templeton lost that because he was not fully persuaded. The rest is history. Charles Templeton passed away from Alzheimer's a number of years ago. And as you know, Billy Graham's passing just occurred very recently. His life has been celebrated and respected by all, believer and unbeliever alike. And so we close this morning with this uh, reminder of the importance of, can I just close with this thought, of continuing in the faith, continuing in the faith, not just coming to faith, not just coming to the place of being entirely persuaded in the truth of the gospel, but continuing in that place. And as we continue in that place, the promise of Scripture is that God's power and ability is manifested in our lives to bring about those things that only He can bring about. Amen. And so be it.